welcome to Church of the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. James chapter 5, 1 through 6, and I'll be doing it in, in Spanish. So Santiago, uh, 5 del 1 al 6, says, um, Vamos ahora, ricos, llorad y aullad por las miserias que os vendrán. Verse 2. Vuestras riquezas están podridas, y vuestras ropas están comidas de polilla. Vuestro oro y plata están enmohecidos, y su modo testificará contra vosotros, y devorará del todo vuestras carnes como fuego. Habéis acumulado tesoros para los días postreros. Verse 4. He aquí clama el jornal de los obreros que han cosechado vuestras tierras, el cual por engaño no les ha sido pagado por vosotros, y los clamores de los que habían cegado han entrado en los oídos del Señor de los ejércitos. Verse 5. Habéis vivido en deleite sobre la tierra y sido disolutos. Habéis engordado vuestros corazones como en día de matanza. Verse 6. Habéis condenado y dado muerte al justo, y él no os hace resistencia. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here today. Lord, we ask that you'd open our hearts and our minds and our ears to what you have to tell us. Lord, convict us where we need to be convicted, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, Lord, but mostly we just want to see Jesus glorified in our own lives. So we ask, Lord, that you would teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. You ever had one of those mornings? It has been a morning, let me tell you. So, um, and to make it all the better, if you are new here today, we are gonna be talking about the one thing that every single person doesn't wanna talk about in church, and that's money. So welcome, I'm glad that you're here. Um, my name's Kevin, I am the lead pastor of Church at the Well. Um, we've been going through the book of James just systematically, verse by verse, we do that here. Um, and we find ourselves in James chapter five. For those of you who are new, I just wanna kind of help kind of give you some reference and maybe pick up some background on where we're headed. So James wrote this book in order for each individual in the church to kind of put a mirror in front of themselves and really evaluate their own heart. That's what we're after here. Now what makes this specific passage interesting is that he kind of like takes an aside. So I don't know if you guys like plays, I like to go to plays, I like live theater, and there's these moments that they call a soliloquy, where an individual who is um, acting in the play will kind of like step aside, right? And then they're gonna inform the audience what's going on inside of their head, because we can't see that, and they're gonna tell them, this is what I'm feeling, this is what's going on, and then it's like they step back into the scene and we pick back up again. You guys are all looking at me like I'm crazy. Do you, do you follow this? Okay, great. That's kind of what James does here. He's been addressing the church specifically for a long time, and it appears that he kind of takes this aside, and he's going to be basically addressing individuals who have a lot of money who are unbelievers and some of the issues that he sees that are going on in his culture as a result. And so we go, well then, why would we even go through this as a church? The answer is because we see those issues too, and this concept of money and resource and how we live our lives in a, in, a, in a fiscally responsible way, we can learn from what the world teaches us and how we apply the gospel to that. And so before we kind of dive in, I wanna tell you a little bit of my story. Some of you have heard this before, some of you haven't. So I grew up in what would be considered a Christian home. Um, my parents went through a divorce when I was 16, 17 that was horrific. 
And what I learned through that process was that the faith that I had been taught as a kid wasn't strong enough to get me through what I was going through at the time. And so the reason was, I think in my generation, Christianity was kind of taught like fire insurance. It was, hey, you need to come to Christ, and he loves you, and he died for you, and the gospel was expressed, but it was expressed in a manner where everything about the gospel and all of its benefits were in the future. So there was a lot of conversations like, don't, you don't wanna go to hell, right? Like, like, we know that hell exists, we know that, of course, heaven is part of the gospel, but when everything is focused on the future, like after you're dead, and there is no application of the gospel in your current life, it makes things a little bit more complex. And what I had to learn, like Christy and I walked through together, is how do we apply the gospel to areas of our life so that our faith is actually represented consistently? And I would venture to say this is pretty much the struggle of everyone who's a Christ follower, right? I challenge you every week since we've been in the book of James, like really it's boiling down to where in your life is the gospel not being applied and how do we get to a place where it is? That's what we call discipleship. I mean, you can break, there's a whole lot of definitions to discipleship, but really what it boils down to is applying the gospel to every area. Realizing where it's not being applied, figure out what it looks like in that area, and then inviting Jesus to those moments, right? So as we grew, this area of finance was, I, I don't wanna say like, I was extremely sinful in it, but as I look back, I'm like, man, I, this was a hard one for me. I, I made all kinds of excuses to say, Lord, here's the deal, I, I wanna give you my life, I, I'm growing, I'm beginning to understand how the gospel applies to me, but when it comes to the area of finance, like I work hard, I'm constantly hustling, right? I, this is mine. This is gonna be the area that I hold on to. And I remember like I was attending this huge church in California, massive, and they had all these classes all the time, and you could show up at church pretty much any day, every day, all day if you wanted to, and we'll talk about that another time, has its benefits and disadvantages, and so there was all these classes on finance, and Christy was coming to me and saying, okay, we should attend one of these, and I'm like, absolutely not. That is not happening. I'm not doing that. Like, God can have everything of me, but he's not having this. And it took, eventually, us selling our businesses, moving to New York, raising support, becoming missionaries in upstate New York at a camp for inner city kids from like Washington Heights and Harlem, and for the Lord to just absolutely trash my heart in the area of finance and create a dependency upon him. And now I look back and go, Lord, that was so hard, but thank you. Right? I told you that because I understand a struggle. I get it. We also live in a culture that, I mean, we could probably make the argument that money is, I would say, in what, in the top two or three idols in our culture? But we could probably say that throughout the world. And so I think what James is attempting to do, if you remember what he talked about last week, we're looking at all of these areas of pride and humility, and he, he's basically going to say, look, I'm gonna give you an example of pure pride. 
So church, listen up. Like when you look at the world out there, individuals who don't know Jesus and they have a lot of money and how they're handling it and so on and so forth, like we need to understand that we're susceptible to these types of temptations and sins even though we know Christ. And so it's an important concept to understand. Um, So we'll go through some practical things as we move through this verse by verse, but what I really want you to gauge here is um, there's a couple of things. One, I'm just gonna throw this out there. We're all more generous than we, we're all less generous than we think we are. That's just reality. Like, I've never met a single person that has told me I'm not a generous person. (laughs) Everybody believes they're generous. Everybody believes they're generous with their time and their talents and their gifts and their money. Everybody believes that they're sacrificing more than everyone else. That's just how we work. It's kind of a self-protection thing as sin-cursed human beings living in a sin-cursed world. We just, if, and if we, if we find somebody who's more generous than us, then how we feel better about it is we'll find somebody less generous of, uh, than us and compare ourselves to them, right? And when I'm talking generosity, it's not just finance, I'm just saying in general. We tend to think that we're more generous than we actually are. On top of it, we also have this tendency, I would venture to say every, probably every person in this room has a misunderstanding of money, and it's probably unhealthy. It's, it can lean one way or another, right? You can, you can hate the rich and everything that it stands for. You can um, complain about power and corruption and capitalism and all of these things and, and create bitterness and hate in your heart to where it impacts you negatively. You can go the other extreme, right? And act, actually loathe individuals who have less. And we'll talk about that. You probably have something in you, and you have said this, and I know there's a lot of students in here today, um, there's things that will say, like, if I just had a little bit more, things would get better. And as we go through this, one of the things I want to encourage you in is this. It, money, doesn't, money can make things a little bit better, right? But if you find your identity in trying to gain more stuff, it's similar to, like, trying to beat exhaustion with coffee, right? It'll mask things for a little while. But over time, there's a crash because it's unfulfilling, right? And so with those things in mind, what I'm asking you to do today, just like every passage we've gone through in James, is make sure that that mirror's going up and be really honest with your own heart with all of these things. Like, where are you really at with this? Okay? All right, here we go. Starting in chapter five, verse one, it says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This is intense language. Um, This is why I'm assuming, I think there's a whole lot of doctrinal things here that we can say he's stepping aside and addressing kind of what the church is seeing out there. He doesn't talk about repentance. You know, in every passage that James is giving to the church, he's saying, we need to repent over these things, we need to repent over these things, and in this instance, he's not talking about repentance, he's just saying, I'm observing what's going on, and I'm observing the way that the world's living, and I'm observing the way that the rich are doing certain things, specifically, we'll address in passage, and I know that the end result of that is gonna be their, their own destruction. Now, 
once again, why is James so adamant about this specific topic and why choose this one to address the world? Well, um, if you were, have you ever attended like the doctrine class at Church at the Well, you'll find that we talk about there's a section on what we call generosity. And that section is important because what, we've, what we'll teach you in that is 25% of Jesus' words, his specific words in, in the New Testament and on the four Gospels actually talk about money and stewardship of money. One quarter of everything that Jesus said has something to do with money. When I look at scripture across the board, Old Testament, New Testament, there's about 800 verses in scripture that talk about how we handle our resources and how we steward well. And you gotta be thinking, if there's that much in there about it, it must be a heart issue for us in a very major way. And then you apply like my personal story, you guys can pick on me if you like, or however you view it, we realize, wow, this is a pretty important topic. He addresses it, he says this is, this is what it is, right? Um, knowing that our culture enhances this idea of attempting to gain everything. I got into a discussion this week I think it was this week, my weeks are a mess, about, you know, we were talking about the American dream and what is the American dream anymore? Like when I was growing up, the American dream had probably evolved a little bit, but it, it was obtain as much as you can and create as much comfort as you possibly can so that when you retire, whatever that means, you don't have to do anything. You can just kind of do what you want. That was the American dream. Prior to that, it was purchase a house, have a white picket fence, leave it to Beaver. Um, that was this old black and white show that I used to watch reruns of. Maybe you've heard of it. It was like this picture of this ideal family and they lived the American dream. I don't know what that is anymore. It feels like, like when I look at younger generations, it's evolved a bit to say, you know, COVID changed some things. We have like digital nomads now, and it seems to be I want enough money to travel as much as I want, work from wherever I want, do whatever I want. I don't want to have to stress about it. Um, there were some statistics that came out recently about how wealth is kind of distributed in our country and how the newest generation, and I hate to tell you guys this, the newest generation is handling money statistically the worst than that the country has ever seen. It's fascinating. It's, a, it's an interesting thing, money. I was talking with a pastor friend when he was younger, he used to tell his mom because they struggled so much with money. He's like, I hate money. And she's like, you can't hate money. Like, like money itself is, is, is nothing to hate or to love. It's, it's it, it's, it's what we use. It's the heart behind it that really makes the difference. So James, right off the bat, he's looking at what's going on in the world, and I would say for our application in this, he's saying, if we're handling money the same way the world is, then we're probably handling it poorly. This isn't, this isn't a don't, don't, achieve what you're dreaming of achieving. This isn't don't 
accumulate wealth. This isn't, you can't be prosperous. In fact, when you look at scripture, we have four different kind of categories of money, right? We have the righteous rich, and we have the unrighteous rich, and then we have the righteous poor and the unrighteous poor, and it doesn't really, it's not really revolving around how much money they have besides classifying them as rich or poor. What makes them righteous is how they're viewing money and how they're using it. And so he's introducing this by saying, we have a tendency to look and idolize what's going on in the world and place our expectations and hopes and dreams on that instead of truly understanding how to gospel ourselves through finance. And so he's saying we need to look at this a little bit differently. Verse two says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. This is describing the idol of money. Um, Jesus spent some time talking about laying up treasures in heaven. Like, what does that mean? It means that there's some things that are gonna be eternal and there's some things that aren't. And money's one of those things that we're not taking with us. Uh, this isn't take a lot of commentary. This, it's not like this passage is complicated, but it's deeply rooted in some sin. When you think about some of the things that we idolize, like uh, you go on vacation, maybe you go to Egypt, and you look at, oh, I want to see the pyramids, because from an architectural standpoint, those things are amazing. We sit back and we're like, how did this even happen? Right? How do they build things like this? Or like Pastor Matt and Julie recently were in France and I was looking at pictures of, they were visiting the Palace of Versailles and the extravagance, right? That's not, we don't even have to be far removed from that. You can go at any point if you live in New England to Rhode Island, right, and see these houses from the Gilded Age. And we can walk into like, Houses of like the Vanderbilts and these individuals who had so much money and these are their summer homes, right? So they're, they're putting so much extravagance and money into something massive that requires 30 people to staff it and they're only there like three months a year. And we look at it and we're like, wow, this is incredible. Like look at how... Some of us will go to those things and we want to see them and we're overwhelmed by how much power and wealth and, and extravagance is placed into this. Others of us go there and you just cry because you just realize how much waste was given there. And there's this battle between us to kind of admire what's built and then at the same time to just be saddened over the fact that, man, was there a better use for money like that? There's this, the reality is, like you look at the Egyptians, they built these pyramids, well they're gone. And as archeologists have gone into pyramids, they've realized that grave robbers came in and stole the stuff and they didn't get to take it with them and it was a waste. There's an old saying in the United States that says he who dies with the most toys wins. I don't know what that means. Right, like we have this as American culture, we have this insatiable urge to gain more stuff. There's shows about this. Have you seen shows on hoarding? It's creepy. 
right? I mean, I know there's like some like mental things here that, that often have to be addressed and it can be just be a symptom of what's going on, but when you think about the fact that we're actually entertained by watching people collect so much stuff, one of the saddest things in our culture is what we call storage units, right? We have so much stuff that we don't know what to do with it, so we get storage units to store stuff that we don't really need but we don't wanna get rid of. I wonder how James would have viewed that, right? Once again, this isn't, if you have a storage facility, you need to go sell all your stuff and get rid of your storage facility. I'm just saying this is the culture that we live in, right? Like this is it. We just, it's a constant accumulation. How about this one? How many Amazon packages show up at your door every week? Like Amazon, what I've realized is that Amazon has grown on impulse buying now, right? Like I'll, I'll see a package come to my house and I'm like, I don't even remember ordering that. And if I don't remember ordering it, then I obviously didn't need it. So why did I get it? I don't know, it was like an impulse. It was like, ooh, great, let's get it. It's only this much money, right? And so Amazon passages are constantly coming. I'm in here a lot because our office is upstairs and when the coffee house is open and there's, there's some apartments upstairs and I watch how many Amazon packages are constantly coming in, right? It's just, it's, it's crazy. Is this hitting? Okay, I wonder, and I think James is kind of posing this question like, what would it look like if there was a little bit of shift in this thinking? What would it look like if instead of us saying, we're just gonna accumulate things that we don't really need, we actually did something different with our money? What would it look like? What would it change? More, since we're looking in the mirror, one of the questions might be, what would change in here? It's fascinating to think about. How much time do we actually spend surfing for things that we don't need and instead of doing things that could be eternally valuable, right? So he's saying we need to be reminded that the idol of money for us, I think the idol of stuff, it's temporary. In fact, it feels like it's more and more temporary. I feel like every time I buy something new, I'm having to buy it again sooner than I did before. Like the, the, and maybe it's just because I'm getting old and I'm turning into like my dad who's like, I'm always, I was always something broken. I'm always having to replace something. But it's like, man, I, okay, my phone's only lasting two years now. Why? Right? Why, are th- why was it constantly breaking? I'm having to replace it. It's just, it's, it's a reminder that stuff doesn't last. There's gonna be no point whatsoever where as a church, we're gonna be face to face with Christ and he's gonna say something like, well done accumulating. Never happen. You got so much stuff. Something to think about. So he says the first issue with money is this idea of idol, and and an idol is demanding. It just asks you to keep going, right? Um, We have an enemy, and I'll, I'll tell you the enemy's flaw, okay? 
because you've heard me talk about a lot about like probably the enemy's not attacking you, it's one, in, one, one being and so on and so forth, but most of our issues come from in here. The enemy's flaw is this. He doesn't just get us on a path or tempt us in a path or encourage us down a path we're already walking and then leave us there. Because if he did that, I feel like it would be more effective. The problem is he wants utter destruction. So every idol that we put in our life, what its ultimate end is, is destruction, because it doesn't just say I want a little bit of you, it continues to increase that call to say I want more and more and more. And that, you could really put that into anything. It doesn't have to be just finance, it's any idol. The church can be an idol. I mean, we've seen that. Anything, anything that's controlling you, Anything that's saying, give me more, 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 and pushing you into something that is not honorable and not eternal, we'd consider an idol. That's one of the biggest issues with idol worship. Is it's, gonna, it's, it's, it's never satisfied. It's constantly asking you to dedicate more. More time, more energy, more of your thoughts. And James is saying, as we see that in the world, let's not emulate that in the church. Next, verse four, he says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. What I found interesting in this passage is it seems to progress in its intensity of how much the idol is controlling the individual. It starts off with identifying as an idol and saying, this is a problem. You're gonna kind of become hoarding, you're gonna desire stuff, you're gonna do all kinds of crazy things to accumulate, and it's never gonna satisfy you enough. And then the next thing is, you're going to find yourself in a position to wanna keep as much of that as you can and not be generous with it. And so in this, in this context, he's talking about paying wages to individuals who are taking care, like gardeners or, uh, harvesters or whatever, so you, you can kind of picture, if you picture the movie version, it's a business owner, right, or a land owner, and he's got these individuals working for him in his field, and there's fraud and there's oppression that's going on. Meaning, they stop seeing the people that are working for them as people and start seeing them as tools to obtain more stuff. The crazy thing is everybody in here has felt that way before. There's not, I've never met a person who's not like, man, I, I've, I haven't worked for somebody like this, or I just felt like a tool, right? And if I just didn't perform, then they were just gonna let me go, or whatever it is. Um, we all have felt this. Some of us have done it, right? And you may not ever be a leader, you may not ever be in a position to where you're like, I have staff underneath me and I'm paying them or doing whatever, but in some ways we still do this. It's this heart attitude to say, I'm going to keep what's mine and I deserve it and I'm not going to let it go and if I have to let some of it go, 
I'm gonna let it go in the most painless way possible to make sure that it's not impacting me negatively. It's not cutting into what that idol is saying that I'm after. So it, it's cheap. I used to work in the restaurant industry. Okay, so owned a restaurant, catering businesses when I was young, like 23, 24. Um, one of the things that we learned in the restaurant industry really quick is the worst days for tips were Sundays. And I lived in a, a place that would be considered like the Bible Belt of California. So there's mega churches all over the place. And when you figure out the statistics, you realize that what's going on is people would go to church and then they would go out to lunch afterwards and they were stiffing their servers. Like it got so bad at one point, like there were like people coming from church and instead of leaving a tip, they would actually leave like a Bible track. Like, oh, your tip is you need to know Christ. And I'm like, wow. As a caterer, I would get calls from churches, and churches would hire us to do a job, and the most difficult people to get paid from were churches. It was amazing. It was like, come on. Like, we did the job, be honorable, pay the bill. But I had to hunt down more church leaders than anybody else because they didn't want to pay their bill. And I'm like, what is going on here? There's something that James is recognizing here is that, I don't know, do, do, as a Christ follower, is there a, a, a potential to like elevate ourselves up to say, look, you're lesser than me, so I don't need to be generous with you? I'm, I'm the Lord's man or woman. Like, I, I don't know what it is. But there's something in the heart of the church that seems to be cheap, right? And I don't, I don't know where that comes from. I'm convinced that Christ followers should be the biggest tippers. Like, we, we shouldn't be the people that the industry's complaining about, we should be, they should be like, oh my gosh, it's Sunday. This is an awesome day for us because the most generous people walk into this space. Right? They're the most gracious, the most kind, the most generous individuals. I mean, I've, like Paul, I know what it's like to have more than I need and know what it's like to have not enough. And I mean, we've gotten to a place where it's like, if I can't tip well, I just won't go out. Because I think it potentially could do more harm than good. That's just one example. I think what he's looking at here, because I was trying to make this make sense to everyone. We have people that are constantly working for us. We have people that serve us. We have people that um, we hire. I mean, in California, it was a big deal to actually have a gardener and hire somebody to mow your lawn. So this was very, very right on and... <laughs> There's this progression in idol worship, especially over money, to hold back as much as we can so that we don't lose any. And not be generous with it. We have, we have all been the reciprocant 
of an individual who is not generous, and we've all been on the other side of being an individual who is not generous, and we realize the impact that it makes. But once again, there's something in us where we'll excuse our lack of generosity and our lack of just holding on tight to whatever it is that we have by saying, well, I'm more generous than this person behind me. There's a progression. Next, keeps going. Verse five, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The key word here is self-indulgence. You move from this idea of idol worship, accumulation of gotta have it all, to now I'm holding so tight to it that I'm not willing to share. What am I doing with what I'm not sharing? It's just wrapped up in self-indulgence. This is hard. This hits a lot of, this hits a lot of levels. How do we define self-indulgence? What does it look like? How much can I actually, I mean, how much can I actually obtain in a holy way? Is it wrong to be ambitious? No. So how do we determine this? Like, how do we know that we've crossed the line into self-indulgence? And here's how we know. Just like every sin, it's a heart issue. It's here. I think it does look different for everybody. If scripture's correct, which it always is, and we have, say, righteous rich and unrighteous rich, then there has to be a difference in what they're doing with their money. Jesus doesn't say give every single thing that you have away, right? But he did say that to one person in scripture that we were aware of, the rich young ruler, right? If you think about the rich young ruler of the story, so if you haven't grown up in church world, it's Jesus is walking around with his disciples and he's invited some people to join him on this journey as he is living the life that we were supposed to live and exampling it. And he's building into, he's got 12, right? He's building into three, really. And when you look at his invitation, this rich young ruler, this, this guy approaches him and he's like, what do I need to do? Like, I, I, he's theoretically saying, I know who you are and I desire to follow you, but what do I need to do to go deeper? Which is a question that I hear a lot. How do I go deeper? Like, I want to go deeper. And Jesus' response to that was, because he's Jesus, well, I can see in your heart, and I know what's holding you back. And what's holding you back is you're extremely wealthy, and you're living out what James is describing here, and it's an idol for you. Now, I want you to compare, like, we don't think this way. Jesus is inviting him to join his group. He's literally, I mean, I don't know if this was an invitation to actually be like a disciple, but he's literally saying, look, if you're willing to give all of that stuff up, you can follow me. There's this choice. Do you care more about this idol that you're serving, or are you really willing to give up everything and walk with me face to face? And then when we think of the choice that way, I hope, as Christ followers, we'd be like, well, of course, I would choose Jesus, right? 
But Jesus looks at him and says, the issue in your heart is this money. And so what's gonna prevent you from truly following me is you need to be willing to give that up. And what does it say the rich young ruler did? He's like, nope, that's not happening. I love my money, I love my prestige, I love my stuff too much. Ultimately what he's saying is, Jesus, the cost that you're asking me to pay for intimacy with you is too much. He preferred self-indulgence over Jesus. So how do we know if we've crossed this line of self-indulgence? Well, are you placing it over Jesus? And if, if not, what's the proof of it? Like in your own heart. Like it's, I can't look at an individual and go, this is what's going on in their heart. You can't look and see what's going on in my heart. Jesus has that ability. The Holy Spirit lives in believers. He has that ability. This is why as we look in the mirror, we have to say, have I crossed the line of self-indulgence? Like is my heart out of place? where my desire is to indulge myself more than actually spend time with Christ. More than spending time with other people. More than being on mission. What's really fascinating about this one too if we really think through it, we have a tendency in our American culture to raise up and idolize those who practice self-indulgence. And you're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, okay, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. How many followers do you have? I ran into a guy not too long ago, and all he wanted to tell me was how many followers he had on whatever interweb thing he was doing, right? And once again, nothing necessarily wrong with it, but as a culture, we elevate self-indulgence. Like, do you really care what people ate today? Do you really think that people care what you ate today? It's funny when you think about it, Like I'm so important, I'm so self-indulgent that I have to show you pictures of what I actually ate today because I think you care, right? That's, I know I'm being harsh because I've done this too. I'm like, that was so good, I have to share this, right? But think, I mean, when you think about it, that's, it's really crazy. It's just, we idolize people who constantly find new ways to self-indulge. We elevate them up in our culture. Reality shows, they're crazy. I mean, they've changed. When I, I remember watching my first reality show and I was like, that's really interesting and fascinating. They have changed so much. You know, now it's about just idolizing an individual who's living a certain way and they do crazy stuff and we're like, that's so cool, I wish I had that life. Self-indulgence. It makes it hard. I don't want to sound like this is easy because it's not. I tell you, 
a lot. We, we have scripture here that speaks very black and white about what salvation is and why we were created to glorify Jesus and how this works, but we also have scripture that tells us we live in sin-cursed bodies in a sin-cursed world, and it's very gray, and to take black and white truth and try to apply it to gray world is hard. It's really hard. That's why we have to put the mirror up consistently. That's why we have to do self-checks. Where's my heart going? Is it toward self-indulgence? And is it all about me? Um... Last example on this. Make it, first, I got to step aside and give some props. Like, we had these students leading us in worship today, which most, some of them have never really done a whole lot, and they were humble enough to desire to do that. And then the tech went down, and I was sitting there thinking, I just hope they know the song, right? Because there's cheats in the back, just so you guys know. And um, they killed it, right? I was like, yeah, that was awesome. You were already nervous, you are already out of your comfort zone, and here you guys killed it. And I was like, I'm so proud of you guys for, for sticking with it. Because I probably would have been like, we're gonna hum for a while. <laughs> and I probably would have been looking at the tech people like, what are you doing to me, right? But the whole thing just crashed. Worship through music, I think, is a great example of self in, potential self-indulgence and an understanding of it. And I, I see this in two ways. So once again, it's a heart check. We tend to sing, there's a tendency and a, and a trend to write songs and sing songs that are all about us and not Jesus. I feel this way, I do this, I, 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 I. Every worship leader I've ever worked with, I'm like, hey, I'm okay with a few I songs, but let's make sure they're not I, all I songs, right? Like. One a Sunday, maybe, because I think that emotion's important. But really what's most important when we come to worship through music is for us to acknowledge who God is and what he's done. And through poetry, it helps our emotions connect in the gospel to Jesus. That's what worship through music is supposed to do, right? But I don't, I mean, you can go to you know, worship nights or, or whatever, and you spend so much time speaking about who we are that it, I mean, I think there's even a tendency in our worship to become self-indulgent, which is ultimately why we have the enemy, right? The second area of worship that I see a lot of self-indulgence is this idea that in worship through music, because we have so many options, we come in with this attitude of, you have to feed me. Like, I expect perfection. This was the perfect example today as tech went out. Like, I expect this band to be off the chart phenomenal. I expect you to take me to an emotional place that I never take myself during the week. self-indulgence it's this is what it's become entertain me right I remember when we moved to Boston one of the things I said is I if the church attempts 
to entertain people, it's not gonna make it because there's too much good entertainment in a city like Boston. We're not gonna compete with that, nor should we, right? But it's, we see self-indulgence in the church in this idea of you entertain me, you provide for me, you do this for me, you, I, I literally heard somebody said the other day like, that my church isn't serving me enough. And I'm like, what does that mean? What do, what do you mean? Is your pastor preaching the gospel? Yes. Are there opportunities for you to grow as a disciple? Yes. Then what, what does that mean? What the heart of the church should be is I'm not serving the church enough. And I don't mean this facility. I'm talking about the universal church around the world. I'm not serving Jesus enough, right? That's how self-indulgence comes into even our lives. Last section here, last verse, verse six, it says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. We, the last phase of pure idol worship when it comes to money revolves around actual violence over it. I'm gonna go to war over oil. I mean, that's extreme, but it's the extreme example. We, how, what does that look like in a personal level? Well, I'm gonna get violent over you because you're now lesser than me and you don't even, des- like, do you, th- this is when you know. Do you know who I am? When that hits our head, we're in trouble. Because that attitude eventually moves to, I'm seeing you as lesser, and if I see you as lesser, any threat to how I view myself as opposed to you is gonna potentially end in something violent. How many people die every year over money? It's crazy. We're so obsessed with it that it actually becomes components of violence. Great movies, right? Great movies, like mystery, I love a good mystery, right? If you, if you follow any like mystery series, you're gonna realize that like every great detective, right? And I don't, it's made up, but it's still fun. Every great detective is gonna look at like two motives right away. And one of them, the top one is money. You do a background check on someone, the first thing you're gonna look at is their finances because that's probably the motive for the crime that they committed. Right? I had a, so years and years ago, I was working at a drug and alcohol rehab program for men. They, they had a six month program and they asked me to come in and help them build like a second six months as a discipleship program for guys that felt like they needed more. And so I came in for a period of time and built this out for him and set up some leadership. And while I was there, there was a guy, I, I hope, I'm just gonna say his name because I hope he's listening. His name's Keith. And he was probably six foot eight and 450 pounds. Like, when you saw him walking, you would be like, that's Keith. Right, like there was no question. This guy, he couldn't hide anywhere. He was massive, man. And he came to the program and 
attempting to get clean, and um, he had all of these money issues. Like, that was one of the things we came about right away. Like, he got into a bunch of debt, and I, he owed some nasty people some money through some sharks and Shylocks, and he had been beaten up several times, and so on and so forth, right? So part of our job was to kind of keep him protected at least for six months before we released him out into the world. And as he was getting to the end of his program, he felt over, he professed Jesus, appeared like he was starting to walk this direction, but as he got closer and closer to his program and his ultimate release, he knew that he was going to have to account for a lot of the things that he was going to do. And this is what he did. And it's gonna sound humorous, but it's crazy. But I just want you to see the extent. So he asked to borrow a vehicle from somebody at the camp. And he drove to a bank wearing a ski mask and a gun and robbed the bank. He's 6'8", 450-pound man in a ski mask. It wasn't hard to find him, right? So his ultimate end was it doesn't matter how much faith and trust I put in Christ. It doesn't, when it comes down to the fact that this money issue is the biggest issue in my life, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to satisfy and eliminate it. And so he find, finds himself robbing a bank, right? I remember getting the call and, and, and the guy who loaned him his car is like, did he seriously borrow my car to go rob a bank? Like, is that, is that seriously what just happened? This was his mentor, right? I'm assuming Keith is probably still in jail. I think when we hear stories like that, oftentimes we'll go, well, I would never do anything like that. Really? I bet Keith said that at one point. It's this progression. I, listen, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, saved by grace. The only difference between me and an unsaved individual is I've been forgiven and been given freedom through the power of the Holy Spirit to attempt to live a life honoring to Jesus. And I still fail. Right? But I do believe this. I believe anybody is capable of anything. And I would venture to say that you know that because you've done things in your life that you go, I will never cross that line. And you crossed it. Right? It's just a progression. Idol of money will push us to do things that you never dreamed you would do. To keep it, to obtain it. And as James gives us an example, he's like, church, listen. As we look at how the world's handling money, we look at this desire for it to be an idol. We look at this hoarding idea, right? Collecting and just, we look at oppressing individuals and not being generous. And we look at the ultimate end of it potentially leading to us crossing lines we never said we'd cross and violence and whatever it is. He's like, I'm warning you that you have the potential to move that direction. And it's going to begin if you don't gospel yourselves when it comes to things like finances. So I'm gonna end with this. I, I always want this to be as practical as I possibly can. 
And even though James doesn't specifically talk about this, we're gonna look at, like, what does scripture say that are some things that we need to do to prevent ourselves from becoming this story? And this is very quick. The first is we have to have a proper understanding of who God is. He's a creator of all things. He owns everything, everything. You go, why would we start there? Because when you think it's yours, it impacts the way that you use it. Like, do you really think your car's yours? Do you really think your money's yours? You really think your house is yours? Well, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. Okay, you may own it by a piece of paper. Probably not, probably the bank owns it, so we can't even say it's ours anyway, right? You may own it by a piece of paper, but whose is it really? Who gave it to you? I've been in this discussion. Well, I earned it. How'd you earn it? Well, I worked for the money. What'd you do in work? Well, I did these things. Where'd the gifts come from that allowed you to do that? From your creator. We have to have this proper understanding that, I mean, you go back to the very beginning, Genesis, right? It's God created everything. He owns everything. And what is the first job that he gives the first two people in existence? Good stewardship over what he's created. It's his. So this may be, honestly, this may be it. This may be, you know, you may leave here, and all I'm saying is every time we leave here, we want to just kind of take a step the right direction. This may be it. It may just be going, you know what? I need to spend my week evaluating my heart and praying whether or not I believe that everything I have belongs to him. And that just may be your first step. But it is where it has to begin. It's his. He owns it all. Next, we move into if he owns it all and I have some of his stuff, what am I supposed to do with it? And scripture says we're to be good stewards of it. We're to steward it well. Do you know how many parables Jesus taught about this? We don't care how many talents you have, I don't care how much money you have, steward it well. Like if I, give, if I choose to give you a lot, he says there's a little bit more responsibility but steward it well. If I choose to give you little, steward it well. He, it's not about amounts. In fact, Jesus talks about the fact that it's not about amounts. What he, the, the woman who goes up and gives her tithe at the church, right? And he, she says he gives, she gives so little. It'd be like pennies. And he's like, that woman giving out of her poverty reveals her heart. She's more righteous than the individual who gave a bunch who's giving out of pain and suffering. It's like when you tithe, are you grumpy about it? I used to be. We'll get into tithing in a second, but I remember writing the check and I'm like, God, I'll write it, but this is out of obedience, not joy. And I really felt like the Lord was, I mean, it was an area in my life where I was like, Lord, I need some change in this. Now I can't wait. It's just, it's exciting to me. So we gotta steward it well. So maybe this is the point for you. Maybe you understand that 
that God's given you everything, that it's his. Maybe you understand that you're a steward, but are you stewarding it well? Evaluate it. Like, what does that look like? Sometimes we just need to do the math. Next, we talk about being generous, and this is where I wanted to start with it. If you're stewarding well, Scripture says that the beginning of financial understanding is to be willing to tithe, period. Right? So before I get into this, this is just what I'm going to say to you, because this is where somebody's going to go, this is why I don't come to church. So here's my, here's my challenge to you. It takes money to run church and ministry. If tithing is your issue, and you think that this message is about me trying to get you to tithe more, then don't tithe here. Okay, so we're done with that? Don't do it. So now let's talk about tithing. Okay? Tithing is this, where God said, I want the first 10%. Tithe actually means 10, 10%. And now here's where I'm, this is where I go with this. That's obedience. He says, if you're not willing to just set aside the first 10% to say this goes to the work of the Lord, then your heart is already in a place where you're never gonna be generous. Here's the other thing about tithing. Tithing doesn't make you generous. It makes you obedient. (laughs) But what's interesting about tithing is he knows that our heart is so like corrupt when it comes to money that it's the only place in scripture that I can find where God's actually test me. Test me in this. Test me if you're willing to commit to tithe 10% of whatever comes in, test me and watch what happens. Watch what happens to your heart. Every excuse that we have not to tithe will be obliterated if we'll actually test it. I mean, God doesn't ever ask us to test him. This is the one area because he knows it's our worst thing, right? So good stewardship begins with being obedient and the first thing about being obedient is to tithe. And then last, we move in. So maybe that's your thing, right? This was mine. I'm telling you, I got past the first two. I know I'm a steward. Next was tithing and I'm like, wow, this church is, I was going to a massive church, they seem to have plenty of money, it's like why am I tithing, why am I tithing, why am I tithing, it's not going to the church, it's going, it's an issue of my heart. If you have an issue with tithing, it's an issue of the heart, because it's supposed to be an act of obedience to the Lord. Right? So maybe that's your thing, and I would say Whatever it is that's wrapping you up and in, in, in deciding that you're, finding, you're not gonna be obedient with your finances, like wrestle with that. Like why is that really there? I will promise you this, it doesn't have anything to do with the church, it has everything to do with your heart. Last, we move into generosity. Generosity is taking the understanding that what we've been given beyond obedience to a level that actually creates discipleship in you. And I'm just gonna end with this. This is what scripture says. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's flip that a little bit. 
That means, this is Kevin, okay, Kevin, and Christy talking, we wanna give so much of our time, our talent, our treasure to God's work that it requires that our heart goes with it. That's being generous. Because wherever your treasure is, your heart is. So you can just figure it out. That's where you're gonna be generous. Generosity is going above and beyond obedience. It's, okay, I'm tithing and that's obedient, but now I wanna, so there's one practical way I have figured out how to do this. Because we all think that we're more generous than we are. You've gotta do the math, and I'm just gonna challenge you, be a percentage giver. 10% obedience, but I have this crazy desire someday to flip it. I don't know if it'll ever happen. And I'm like, Lord, I would love to be in a position someday where we can give 90% and live on 10. Because I know my heart. And I want my heart to be there. I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a visionary. You don't think that I struggle with this stuff? Come on. So where are you in this process? And I'm gonna give you one more thing that's practical because I think it's, it's, it means something for today. And this is just an aside. Be careful with debt. This is me talking, father, kids, whatever. Careful with debt. Debt becomes an idol. You're like, what? You get what you want in the immediate and you end up paying for it for a very long period of time and it doesn't give you the ability for freedom. Debt just puts chains on you. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be in debt. I'm not saying, just watch it. Credit card debt will kill you. And you won't be able to be generous. The gospel speaks to every area of this because it's really about our heart. Like we know Jesus came and lived the life we're supposed to live, died the death that we deserve, three days later rose, conquering sin, Satan, and death forever. And then he says, you can live an abundant life in me for eternity by putting your faith and trust in what I've done and not what you've done. That's the gospel. Comes with all the benefits thereof. But one of the things that we need to understand is if we truly grasp the gospel, it means that he desires for us to have an abundant life in every area of our life. And what does that mean? Freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, and emulating Christ in every area that we have. In this specific area, I read a statistic two weeks ago that I, it blew my mind. I had to look it up because I was going to say something about it, and then I was like, eh, is that really true? There's enough money in the churches in the United States to feed every single person in the world. What? If you just calculate, in the United States, the total income of the individuals that attend the church, and you take it all together, there's enough money to feed every single person in the world. What is, so what's wrong? Something's wrong. And we can't blame an entity. <laughs> we have to look at our own hearts. 
So what is the Lord doing? I don't know, right? I, but somehow I'm assuming the Holy Spirit's speaking here. So are you in danger of this? Are you in that? And how do you gospel yourself through it? How do you give it over to the Lord? If you're here and I will say if you don't know Jesus, it begins there. You're not gonna be able to come up with any motivation to do this differently without him. But if you're part of the church, to see how huge of a problem this is, it should, we should take it personal. So what is he asking you to do different? What step needs to be taken? I'm gonna pray. Uh, students are gonna come up and lead us in another song. And just like every week, we end with communion. So the communion elements are here and here. This is my, my thing on communion. If you are a Christ follower, you are welcome to partake with us. And if you are not a Christ follower, meaning you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus, I'm just asking you to refrain. No shame. I just don't want you leaving here with some kind of false hope that you did something religious and the Lord's gonna be like, oh great. This isn't about a checkbox. This is grape juice we bought at the store and little crackers that we broke apart. But for the church, it represents something amazing. It's a reminder of who Jesus is and what he's done. And for us today, I'm hoping it's a reminder that we need to remain humble, that we need to be gospeled. And the only way areas like this are gonna be changed in our life is at the foot of the cross. So this is your time. Wrestle with it. Think about it. And then come meet Jesus at the foot of the cross and ask him for grace. Some of us, frankly, maybe we just need to repent. And maybe that's where you're at. Right? And just, man, Lord, you've given me so much and I've given you so little when it comes to this area, so I just need to repent. And then make a change. I'm gonna pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, this is hard stuff. Even the thought that I have to address the fact that we're gonna talk about money because everybody fears this talk. Lord, I, Lord, I hate that that's even in my heart. Lord, first I just wanna pray for anyone in this room right now who doesn't know Jesus. Lord, we all suffer from the same disease of sin and there's only one remedy and that's Christ. And so I pray right now that anyone in here that doesn't know you personally, I just ask that you'd remove their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, push the darkness back, Lord, let light pierce them. Lord, to meet them where they're at, pray you give them the courage and boldness maybe to talk to somebody about that. But Lord, don't let anybody leave here without knowing that they're yours. And Lord, I pray for your church this little scrappy church in East Boston, Lord, that you've brought and you've sustained through so many things. Lord, we have a desire to see Jesus made famous in this neighborhood and in this city, but Lord, it begins with each one of us. So I pray that we would not be hindered by our own selfish desires, our own self-indulgence. I pray that our hearts would long to see you as Lord and owner of everything, to be good stewards of what you've given us, Lord. I pray that we would be obedient and generous. I pray that that would never be a hindrance for anybody in this community to say that church is just about themselves. 
And Lord, all of these areas where we're struggling in, I ask that you would allow us the grace to see them, to repent, to turn, and to follow you. So Lord, whatever struggles are going on in here, I just ask that you would move. Pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.